Before we do anything else, let's pray together. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, on this most significant and holy of nights, not significant and holy because there is anything unique about December 24th, but significant and holy because we gather to thank, praise, bless, and honor you. Thank, praise, bless, and honor, not only because you are worthy of such an offering, but more pointedly in response to the sending of your Son. Your Son sent not to condemn the world, but sent in love to save the world. Father of lights, you are the giver of all good and perfect gifts, and there is no greater gift than the giving of your Son. And therefore, we come together tonight with choired voices and hearts bowed saying, thank you. And Jesus, thank you for coming willingly, joyfully, submissively, and sacrificially. Thank you for making he who is invisible, visible. Grace, mercy, and love personified. Thank you for coming to the dark and pouring forth light. Thank you for coming even though we were not worthy of it. Thank you for coming and entering the muck and the mire and the evil and the sin and taking it upon yourself and providing us a way of escape, a way that demanded that you take the cross. Jesus, we worship you tonight. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for making Jesus known to us. In your Jesus-glorifying mission, many of us have come to the point where we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You've shone in dark places, our dark places, and said, let there be light. Spirit of God, we honor you and ask humbly and passionately tonight that you do that tonight again in the hearts and minds of those here who don't yet know the one and only true God and Jesus whom he sent. Father, I close this prayer with the words of your servant Jude. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You can go ahead and have a have a seat. I want to welcome you officially. I know you've had some people welcome you already, but I want to welcome you officially to this 2016 version of Christmas Eve here at Westside. My name is Norm, one of the pastors here. Two regular Westsiders who call this place home, welcome here. It is good to see you. If you're a guest, either invited by a friend or a family member, or perhaps you received an invitation in the mail, or maybe you saw a sign outside or just walked on by and you've entered this auditorium with us tonight, a, a special welcome to you. It's, it's indeed our great pr privilege and joy having you. We do not take your visitation lightly, so thank you for making the time and joining us here tonight. It's amazing how quickly these years go by. And how quickly we can go from one Christmas Eve season of Christmas to another. And as I reflected on this time as we enter it again this year, one of the things that came to mind is I think most of us enter this season in the following different ways, but we fit under one of them. Uh, for some of us, for example, we enter the Christmas season entirely opposing it. Uh, to be very frank, some of us here can't stand this season. 
right? It's too commercial, right? It's, it puts too much pressure on us financially. We don't like the familial obligations. We don't like our creepy Uncle Harry. You know what I mean? We got to see him again, and he's creepy. To say nothing of the 12 pounds we're going to put on from tonight through New Year's, we don't like it. Some of you, just again to be frank, and if you were honest with me, you don't like this. Like you don't like being here at this moment, at this time. You're here because you're trying to be kind to a friend or a family member, right? And what's it got you? What's it got? It's got you a pastor in a monkey suit getting in your grill. That's what it's got you. January can't get here fast enough for you. So there's some of us that approach this time of year that way, but there's also those of us who approach it entirely on the other end of the spectrum. Some of us approach this time of the year like my wife approaches it, who she begins decorating for Christmas around Labor Day. I mean, she can't get enough of the lights and the bulbs, right? The garland, the trees, the gifts, the get-togethers, not a lot of mistletoe. Just letting you know, not a lot of mistletoe. But she loves it. She can't get to January too quickly either because that means the next Christmas is coming and she can't get there fast enough. And then there are those who enter this time of the season kind of indifferent to it. They're not like the first group. They're not antagonistic to the coming of this season, but they're not exactly, actually fired up or exactly fired up like the, the second group. They're not Scrooge, but they're not like Will Ferrell and Elf either. You know what I mean? Right? They, they'll get gifts for people, but they're going to get gifts for people on the way home tonight at Canadian Tire. Right? That's them. Right? Interestingly, and here's why I begin this way tonight, these approaches, common, I think, for most of us in this room, actually show up in the text that Grace just read for us. Approaches then at that first Christmas, if we could use that type of language, that mere approaches that are common to us today. Now, to be fair, the first Christmas, that first Christmas, what we'll call the first Christmas, stands in stark contrast to the glitter and the pomp and the circumstance and all of the other things affiliated with Christmas today. But if you whittle down that first Christmas to its essence and you whittle down Christmas in 2016 to its essence, you get to the very core of it, they stand exactly similar what is Christmas about? What was that first Christmas about? What is Christmas today about? The exact same thing. The arrival of the Christ, Jesus. The arrival of the Christ, the long-awaited one. And what we see in the first Christmas is that the approaches of people in that text that Grace read, again, one more time, mirror the approaches that are common for us today. For example, in Herod. Herod was an individual who stood absolutely opposed to the coming of Jesus. In Herod, we have one who was entirely opposed to him coming. Herod, who is Herod? Just to help us out a little bit, give you a little history lesson. Herod, also known as Herod I or Herod the Great, was the Rome-appointed king of Judea. 
Therefore, he was a puppet king of sorts, but Rome availed him a certain amount of status and power and authority and title as long as he kept the peace. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was very important to the Roman leadership. And so if Herod, the king of the region of Judea kept the peace, they would allow him a lot of freedom. Herod was known for a number of different things. From a positive standpoint, Herod was appreciated by many for his commitment to the raising of certain infrastructure. For the Jewish people, Herod was appreciated because he gave himself to the refurbishing of the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he gave himself to other endeavors like that, and therefore he was appreciated for that fact. However, as Josephus, the great Jewish historian, writes in his Jewish antiquities, Herod was more known for being a man who was absolutely tyrannical, a a, a megalomaniac. Herod Herod was known as an individual that was short-fused. He was an individual who was married nine times, killed one of his wives, killed two of his sons, a narcissistic, autocratic egotist on a good day. That's Herod. Herod is that individual that we are introduced to in that, in that story that was read for us, that account in Matthew 2. More than anything, Herod liked being Herod. Herod enjoyed the status and the position and the title that being the king of Judea afforded him. He liked, to be very clear, he liked being the king of his kingdom And so imagine his response. Put yourself in his place, knowing what he is like. Imagine his response when a bunch of visitors drop into Jerusalem and they ask the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod's immediate reaction would have been, what are you talking about? There's only one king of the Jews and you're looking at him. I'm the king of the Jews. But as we read of in the story, and if you've read it on your own, you'll realize that Herod tries to cover up this initial reaction and says to these visitors from the east who have dropped into Jerusalem, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem. And so he sends them away, but he asks them for one one thing in return. When you find out where he is laid, come back. Tell me where he is because I would like to go there and worship him. Well, if you know the rest of the story, the visitors from the east, they go to Bethlehem, but they don't return to Herod and let him know where this baby Jesus is laid. They go back another way, and they don't return to him. And when Herod catches wind of this event, he takes matters into his own hands. And in fact, he reveals the depth of the depravity of his heart, his self-love, his dedication to his own status and title and position. And he then orders... He gives this order, horrific order. He gives the order that all boys two years and under in the city, in this town really of Bethlehem, are to be destroyed. Horrific. And that's his approach. That's his response to this arrival of Jesus. The slaughter of Jesus. But there are other responses in what was read for us too. There's a second response, and we see this second response to the arrival of Jesus by way of the scribes and the chief priests. They were the ones that Herod inquired of about where the baby was to be born. 
Where's this king of the Jews to be born? Where is the Christ to be born? They, because they're experts in the scriptures, they tell him by quoting from Micah chapter 5 that he is to be born in Bethlehem. Herod, as I just mentioned a couple of moments ago, he lets the visitors know and he sends them on their way. But who don't we hear from again? In what was read, who don't we hear from again? Who, who stands out by their omission? Well, the scribes and the chief priests, the scribes and the experts of the law. We don't hear from them again in spite of knowing who their visitors were looking for. All of Jerusalem knew why these visitors had come in. In, in spite of being questioned, in spite of knowing their scriptures and the prophecies contained in them about the coming of the Christ, and thus, and most dramatically, in spite of anticipating the arrival of the Christ, how do they respond? With indifference at best. They essentially ignored it. They don't respond as Herod does, certainly, although they will soon follow his pattern if you read the rest of the story. They reply with apathy instead. Now, now here's what I think perhaps some of you are thinking at this point. Norm, are you saying that if I approach Christmas opposing it, or if I approach Christmas with a measure of indifference that I'm like Herod or one of the religious hypocrites of Jesus' day? Yes. No, that's not what I'm saying. Of course I'm not saying that. But it is interesting, revealing even, how combative we can be when something or someone comes along and threatens our kingdom and position, isn't it? Even or sometimes especially when that someone is Jesus. We can get downright hostile, can't we? Because we like our kingdoms. We like our titles. We like our status. We like the applause. We like the place. We like the niche that we have. And if something comes in and threatens it, pushes in, arrives... We can get very hostile. We can get very combative, very resistant. And it's also interesting how we can move from one year to the next. We can show up to evenings like this year after year after year. We can sing the songs. We can hear the readings. We can even quote the text. We can tell people the story. But in spite of all that insight, not moving any closer to the subject matter. We're not exactly hostile. We're here after all. Just sort of indifferent and apathetic. Those are the first two responses. Perhaps more like our responses than we would care to admit. But there is a third response. The third response is displayed by the visitors from the east. Their response to the arrival of Jesus the Christ is actually seen in a number of ways. The first way that is seen, it is seen is in their pursuit. They pursue from afar. In fact, they come from the east. They come from afar. History suggests that they came from Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. 
perhaps modern-day Syria or Iran, when you picture them, picture Arabian faces. They were individuals renowned in their part of the world, at least for their expertise in the stars, interpretation of dreams, and proficiency in sacred writings. That they are not Jewish. That they are not Jewish. And that they come from the East. And that they come from afar stands out and it reminds us of something absolutely precious and tender and important in regards to the ministry of Jesus and his mission. And that being Jesus has come for all. When we see these people arrive from the east of all places, east is bad in the Bible. It's just bad. And if you know the history of the nation of Israel, if you know especially if you've read up on it, the history of Jacob and Esau... And where these individuals are coming from, and they've come from afar, and they come first, it's all telling. One writes this, the fact that the world comes to Jesus in the first place is a wonderful indication of the universal significance that his birth is to have. To put it simply, Westside and friends and guests, Jesus has come for you. No one's exempt. Their response to the coming of Jesus the Christ is seen, secondly, in their purpose. What is their purpose? Why do they come? Well, they answer in verse 2 of our text, we have seen his star and we have come to worship him. This is their supreme motive for finding Jesus. They wish to worship him. And can I be so bold as to state that this is the only appropriate response to the arrival of Jesus? The worship of Jesus? That all other responses, even indifference, are sadly inadequate and dangerously so. Their response is also seen in their passion. Verse 10 tells us that upon leaving Herod and going to Bethlehem, the star that they saw at the beginning of their journey reappears. And this is what it says in verse 10. Let me read it for you. It says, when they saw, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly. They didn't rejoice exceedingly with joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, what, what is going on here? Well, here's what a couple of Greek language experts write regarding verse 10 of our text. One writes this, you cannot over-translate the joy that is expressed in verse 10. You can't over-translate it. In other words, you can't put enough overjoyed and great joys and exceedingly's in there. It's impossible. Another adds this, the translation of verse 10 should express the greatest possible joy. Westside, let me put it this way. When seeing Jesus, they simply had no more room for any additional joy. They were literally overjoyed. Isn't that great? Little baby Jesus Wise men from the East, renowned, as Matt laid out for us last week, toddler Jesus, and these men of renown, wise men, rich men. All of this stuff, 
that made up their life falls to the wayside and they see Jesus and they are absolutely overjoyed. Their absolute passion is evidenced there in verse 10. Their response is also seen in their position. Verse 11 tells us that when they saw the child Jesus, they fell down and worshiped him. It's at this point that one writes that the wisdom of this world falls at the feet of baby Jesus. And don't imagine that falling down as a subtle, you know, one knee drop. Because the word that is used there in the Greek, peepto, literally means collapse. To, to prostrate oneself. It, it literally, literally means, as one writes, to be destroyed. To be destroyed and collapse. Jesus will do that to you, by the way. <coughs> Jesus will destroy you. In fact, he's committed to it. Coming close to Jesus, Jesus is absolutely committed to your destruction. But not to leave you there. But to rid you of that which needs to be laid aside, needs to be removed, and then to build you back up again. Come close to Jesus. And he'll rid that, like I said, rid that which needs to be ridded of and start building you back up into his image. Christ's likeness from one degree to the next, day after day after day until we see him face to face. And at that time, we will be like him because we see him no longer walking by faith, but by sight. That's what Jesus will do for us. That's what his promise is to us. <clears throat> Some of you are coming into New Year's wanting to better yourselves. You have New Year's resolutions. We want to better ourselves why not let Jesus do it for you? That process can begin tonight, but it must begin with, the follow, with following the pattern of the wise men. Collapsing before Jesus and having him raise us up. And finally, their response is seen in what they present. They opened up their treasures and they offered gifts to Jesus. What type of gifts? Well, gifts fit for a king. Gold speaks of royalty. In fact, in Middle Eastern culture, visiting dignitaries were not permitted face time with a ruling monarch without presenting gifts first. The gift of gold by way of the wise men to Jesus is meant to remind us that Jesus is the king of kings, ushering in an eternal kingdom and thus a king not only of the Jews but the nations of the world near and far. But the gifts were also fit for a priest too. Frankincense was a spice burned by priests and placed on the altar at certain temple ceremonies. This gift is meant to remind us that Jesus is not only the King of Kings, but our great and merciful high priest, the one who brings God to mankind and brings mankind to God. But there's a third gift that the wise men bring to Jesus. It's the gift of myrrh. What is myrrh and what's this meant to signify? Well, this gift was fit for a sacrifice. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, 
and myrrh for a sacrifice. Why do I say a sacrifice? Well, myrrh was a sap from a tree that was used for a number of purposes, but most often as an embalming agent. To say the least, this is a strange gift to give to a two-year-old boy. It's a strange gift. Unless, of course, that child came for a reason that the gift foreshadows. On the screen behind me, just notice what it says in John chapter 19. We read there, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture, mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Westside and friends and guests, it's in this final gift where we're reminded of the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming. He came, Jesus came, ultimately and necessarily to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Jew and Arabian, you and me alike. As I have said throughout the years, Christmas should always be observed in the shadow of the cross. So on this Christmas Eve, I close by asking, how are you responding to the arrival of Jesus? Are you responding with resistance and opposition? Are you responding with indifference and apathy? Or are you responding with joy and worship? Same call for us as those in Matthew 2, 2,000 years ago. How are we responding? Let me pray. And so now, Jesus, we want to follow the example of the wise men and worship you. But we don't merely want to follow their example. We want to be the men and women who realize their quest too. We want to be men and women who seek you, pursue you, and receive more of you. Men and women who love nothing more than the idea of falling down before you. Destroy us, Jesus, we plead, so as to build us up again. We also want to be men and women unlike Herod who willingly and joyfully lay down our kingdoms in the shadow of yours, our positions in light of your lordship. And we want to be men and women unlike the scribes and the chief priests who don't allow our knowledge and insight to lead us to places of apathy and indifference. Forgive us for our indifference, Jesus, in light of such a wonder, God in flesh, the Christ child. And so, Jesus, we beg that you help us realize, realize all of this according to your good pleasure and pray for it all in your beautiful name. Amen.